good to have you all with us. We return this morning to consider a theology of the poor. It's a biblical theology of how the Bible presents the poor in various contexts and passages. We started looking at four misnomers concerning the poor in Scripture. That was last week. A discussion on the relationship of the church to the poor in this world is germane to our society, our culture, our social and cultural climate. It's helpful for us to think about that because you will be speaking to people about that in your workplace. Family members will be asking you about what is your church doing about the social climate, about those who are poor, about BLM, about wokeness. What about that? And hopefully, I've covered some aspects of it that was able to help you think through it. For instance, Mercy Ministries started off as a noble Christian cause, but now it's a cup away from social justice and social transformation ideology. It's not far from that. Listen to this quote from Crossway. The two authors reveal the shortfall of mere proclamation of the gospel. Quote, When we help others in practical ways, we are acknowledging that God created us as physical beings. The state of our flesh greatly impacts our lives. Life is more difficult when we are hungry, cold, intoxicated, sick, or in danger. And so, evangelistic proclamation that does not recognize the physical factors at work in the lives of its hearers risks being tone-deaf and insensitive, in quote. Do you catch that? That is for supposedly a promotion of mercy ministry. So if you go ahead and preach the gospel without considering the poverty of the person you are preaching to, you are inconsiderate and insensitive. Turn to John chapter 6. I will let Jesus respond to that quote. Oh, he doesn't sound happy. (laughs) After feeding the 5,000, Jesus is now, uh, you don't have to leave, it's okay. Jesus is now about to leave, I think they're on the the border of the Sea of Galilee, and he's going over to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is known, if I remember my geography correct, the Sea of Tiberias. Uh, I may have it wrong, but I think that's what's on the opposite side of the Sea of Galilee. And the crowd that was with him decided to follow him. Uh, Take note of verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there. And Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Jump down to verse 25. 
when they, the crowd, had found uh, him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. I know why you're here. Now suddenly your words are so sweet. What are you doing here, Rabbi? I know why you're asking me. Because you want food. That's the only reason you came. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. Interesting. Jesus doesn't focus on their poverty, which they were, they were poor. And he doesn't give them bread again. I gave you bread yesterday, not today. Heart is for you. And so they are now really overtaken by this, right? Where's the bread? Look at what they said. Then they said to him, this is their response to Jesus. What must we do to be doing the works of God? What are they still thinking? Bread. Let me show it to you. Jesus answered them. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So, that, so they said to him, then what sign do you do? You do? That we may see and believe. What work do you perform? Do you know where it's going? Look at verse 31. Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. You know what? Moses gave uh, uh, them in the wilderness. He gave them bread, manna. What are you going to do so that we may believe? Giving them food does not equal their salvation. Jesus doesn't give them food even though they are pleading. Even though they are pleading theologically. Listen, if you want us to believe in you, give us a sign. Here's a sign. Give us some bread. That nice manna that they had in the Old Testament. Give us some of that. Then Jesus said, 32. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I said to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is He who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. What is He doing? He's giving them the gospel. Every time they say, we want bread, you give me bread. He says, yes, the, yes, what you need. You need food, spiritual food. Because bread will not save their souls. But the bread of life can save their souls. They got upset with him. Look down in verse 36. After this, and there's a little bit of a discussion prior to this. But it's connected to this whole discussion of bread of life. Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. You want to eat? Come partake of me. After this, verse 66. Many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It's too hard for them. Too hard for them. Jesus said to the twelve, do you also want to go your way? Do you want to leave as well? Go. Jesus does not bow to disbelief. He does not bow to what the populace wants. He does not bow to the whim and the desire of people. Why? Because he himself is the authority. And if they do not bow to him, then they can get lost. That is 
the gospel ministry. But it sounds hard, right? And so we, we think that we are doing good by doing social justice, by doing mercy ministries without the proclamation of the gospel. We are doing them injustice if we do gospel ministry without the proclamation of the gospel. They walked away because it was too much for them. Was Jesus insensitive? Based on the quote from Crossway, well, sure he was. He didn't give them bread the second time. He gave them the gospel. In fact, the first time when he did give them the bread as well, he gave them the gospel. Because the fundamental need of humanity is not a piece of bread. The fundamental need, regardless of your race, regardless of your state in poverty, is the gospel. Jesus gives them the gospel despite their physical need. I hope you get that. It is not insensitive to give somebody the word of truth instead of a piece of bread. So based on their calculation, Jesus must have been insensitive. Ronald Snyder, president of Evangelicals for Social Action and professor of theology at Eastern Baptist Theological Seminary, says this. Listen carefully to this. Quote, I want to argue that one of the central biblical doctrines is that God is on the side of the poor and the oppressed. Oh, really? Tragically. Evangelical theology has largely ignored this doctrine and thus our theology has been unbiblical, indeed even heretical on this important point. Wow. So I'm, I'm a heretic then. Because he says that the, the, the fundamental theology of scripture is this. God takes the side of the poor and the oppression. You will note that oppression and marginalization is never defined. Okay. Let's say that. So God chooses sides. And to ignore the poor and the oppressed is heresy. I'm going to let Paul in Acts chapter 10 answer this. Acts chapter 10. Sorry, it's Peter. In verse 34. And Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly, I understand that God shows no partiality. But in every nation, anyone who fears Him, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. That's the answer. Not the poor who accept him. Anyone who comes to him and does, that continually does, what is right is acceptable to him. Because if you start doing what is right, but you end, meaning you don't persist in doing what is right, there's something wrong with the heart. Liberation theology does not represent God, but it presents a God of their own making. 
Why am I speaking about liberation theology? I'm going to point out to you that there's a blurring of lines that has taken place in these last few years. John Frame points out this danger. Quote, now, I don't often quote John Frame because he's got some issues, but I do think he makes a point here, and I will point out where he goes wrong as well. Quote, like many philosophical and theological movements, liberation theology makes serious mistakes at the beginning of its thinking process, epistemology. That infects everything else it says. Nothing wrong there. The liberationists demand that commitment to Marxist revolution is the presupposition of the theological task. So it requires no theological permission, end quote. I, I think it's right that they, their starting point, even though I will move it a, a slight, a, a, a slightly further than just epistemology, is wrong. Thus, the word of God is silence on central tenets of liberation theology where it ought to speak its loudest. Now, had he stopped there, I would have said amen. But he doesn't. He adds this. Nevertheless, I think inconsistently that liberationists provide a lot of insight into biblical, social, and individual ethics. God does not care, sorry, God does care, especially for the poor. And those who are content for the poor will bear special judgment. Wrong. He starts off well and then he ends off totally incorrect. So special judgment for those who don't care for the poor. Special judgment. You've got a special place in hell for you if you do not care for the poor. Strikingly, there's no biblical verses given for that. Because I believe there is no biblical verses for that. Again, what you find in a lot of theologies is that the poor is used without explanation. They don't define the poor. Because in a lot of minds today, poor is understood to mean exactly the same today as it did 2,000 years ago. Or should I say, 2,000 years ago when the word poor is used is exactly the same as how we use the poor today, which is not the case. George Ladd, another guy that I don't often quote and probably shouldn't, but I'm going to quote him. He's a Baptist minister and professor of New Testament exegesis and theology at Fuller Simon, uh, Theological Seminary. He should know, right? Notice what he says. Quote, Jesus redefines the meaning of love your neighbor. Wait, wait, wait. Jesus redefines the word there means changes. When you hear that word or read that word, pop, 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 red alert, should go off in your mind when you hear Redefined, you stop and pause and take a pink highlighter because when it's error in my books, it's pink. I don't like pink. So I highlighted pink. There's something wrong here. Jesus changes the word, love your neighbor. So even in the Old Testament, loving your neighbor was limited. It was limited to the nation of Israel. And he knows that. And so he says, well, no, Jesus actually changes it. Listen to what it changes too. Jesus changes or redefines the meaning of love your neighbor or love for your neighbor. It means love for any man in need. 
So no longer is it limited to a certain group of people. Now it's everyone. So then Jesus changed the Old Testament. Interesting. Any person in your neighbor, neighborhood, anyone, then becomes your responsibility. Anyone and everyone who is poor is now your responsibility. I want you to remember that because at the end, if I do remember, I want to read you a quote by JC, uh, by uh, Charles Ryan. This is not true. Every occurrence in the New Testament, every occurrence in the New Testament where neighbor is used, it's used in a closed, limited context. Romans chapter 15 this morning that uh, Don cited, it's used in a church context. Your neighbor there is your brother. Whenever Jesus used it, it was in a limited context of those who belong to God. It's never been the world. But they use the Good Samaritan as an argument for loving the world, which has got nothing to do with loving the world. Now last week we started looking at the first and second misnomer concerning the poor in Scripture. And we covered... Number one, must number number one, both Jews and, and Christians are to care for the poor who are marginalized, which includes a foreigner, widow, orphan, and stranger. And we looked at Exodus 22 and Exodus 23. Those passages are uncontextually abused, showing that poor is a specific group of people in the Old Testament. It is not wrapped up with marginalized. It is not wrapped up with widow and orphan. It is a specific group of people and who are not necessarily economically poor. Then secondly, we looked at misnomer number two. Israel, as well as the church, must work at eradicating the problem of poverty. We looked at Deuteronomy in response to that. Deuteronomy chapter 15. And there the poor person is a poor person who lost his land. So even there, it's not necessarily economic poverty. The person who was bereft of his land. Now this morning, as we begin our third and last, looking at our third and last misnomer, I want to consider the following. Number three, misnomer number three. Gospel ministry includes practical ministry to the poor. That is the third problem that we have concerning the poor in this world. The gospel ministry is somehow wrapped up with caring for the poor. And I think I, I basically covered this both in Bible study and um, in previous sermons. But what I want you to take note here is how this opens the door to social justice, vocology, and liberation theology. I want to begin to consider the primary responsibility of Christians to the poor as we look at gospel ministry to the poor. One of the largest problems is that, that we have today is the redefinition of the meaning of gospel. I don't know about you, but I, I, I keep my eye on the horizon when there are redefinitions of gospel ministry. When suddenly it is now defined as the gospel is this it is defined as a double-edged sword that deals both with the state of the poor as well as the souls of the poor so the gospel then is both dealing with the, the, the state of poverty as well as dealing with the souls of the poor 
In other words, you cannot have the one without the other. Language such as speaking either of social justice or duty to the poor or even wokeology, that is the Christian branch of wokeness, becomes the duty of the church. This, they say, is the primary goal and purpose of the church. And you can put this as defining social justice, wokeness, reaching the lost, whatever this is, is defined as the purpose and the goal of the church. We are told to reach the person and then reach the soul. We are told to, in order to reach the soul, you must first win the favor of the person. I don't know about you, but John chapter, chapter 6 doesn't, doesn't bode well for winning the favor of people first. Jesus doesn't. He doesn't cater to unbelief. Gospel now includes social transformation and reform. Tim Keller, speaking on some of the comments of Jonathan Edwards concerning the poor, says this, quote, The gospel requires us to be involved in the life of the poor. Oh, it does. It does, right? Not only financially, but personally and emotionally. Our giving must not be a token, but so radical that, take note of this, that it brings a measure of suffering into our own lives. Huh. So if you've got, you need to put yourself into poverty before you've really given. You need to cause yourself to suffer before you actually have given. Hmm. And we should be very, uh, I suppose he meant patient, but it's, and we should be very patiently and non-patronistically open-handed to those whose behavior has caused or aggravated their poverty. So forget the fact that they've made bad decisions. Forget the fact that they are in a situation because of their own choices. No, 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 no. You can't judge them. You just have to help them. These attitudes and dimensions of ministry to the poor proceed not simply from general principles, uh, biblical ethical principles, but from the gospel itself. End quote. Wow. So it's the gospel that changes how you deal with the poor. It is the gospel that changes the lives of the poor. So then the gospel causes us to be poor saviors. It drives us not only to be involved in the lives of the poor, but to change the condition or the state of the poor. One of the favorite verses is found in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. Many of you know this context. I've been withholding to deal with this, even though Hiram's been edging me to deal with it in Bible study. But there's a reason I held off from it, because I knew I was going to get to it anyway. So I, I just diverted the discussion to other topics. Very sneaky, I know. But listen to Jesus' response. I'm going to read from verse 1. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went, from out, from on, went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. 
So I think it's a second phase of the work of the ministry of, of Jesus. Now we have a narrative to explain what kind of ministry he's going to engage in. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered him, then, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Well, there you go. The poor and the gospel. Primary purpose of the gospel is to reach the poor. That's what they're saying. However, all of these quotes, there's three in this short section. The words of Jesus from verse 4 onwards to verse 6. There's three quotes. One from Isaiah 35. One from Isaiah 26. And the other from Isaiah 61. And we will look at that in a moment's time. Remember what the Apostle John said in his book, I think it's chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. All these signs and works, all these miracles that Jesus did, he performed so that you may what? Believe that Christ is Jesus. I know your translation says Jesus is the Christ. The subject there is Christ is Jesus. These signs point to one thing. To the Jewish nation, it identifies who the Christ is. Not who Jesus is. Even though it's true that Jesus is the Christ. It points out who the anointed one is. Matthew records, similarly records, these signs and wonders that Jesus performed as proof of the expected one who is who? The Messiah, Christ. What is missing here? Jesus does not tell John's disciples, tell John that I turned the water into wine. Tell John that I fed 5,000 people. I gave the, the poor some food. He doesn't mention that. But he does say that the, the poor are being attended to by the preaching of the gospel. Jesus does not say that the poor have their socio-economic status changed. He does say, I am taking care of the poor by giving them the gospel. There's a couple of things that I want you to note in these couple of verses. Take note of these words. Blind, lame, deaf, dead, and poor. If I were you, I would circle them because they're all connected. Who are the poor? Before I answer this passage, I want to give you just a quick survey of the poor in the New Testament. I gave you a bit, a bit of a survey of the Old Testament use of the poor. Take note. Firstly, when the word poor is used in contrast to the rich, it is always economic poverty. You can find it 35 times in the Bible. Proverbs 22 verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, which speaks of rich and economic poverty. Revelation 13, 16. 
speaking about the pervasive nature of the Antichrist, in that there's no one that will, be, that will escape from his, um, his influence. And it says this, the Antichrist, he causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, uh, rich economic, poor economic, both slave and free to be marked on the right hand and on the forehand. Nobody escapes his influence. Everybody gets the mark. We are heading there very quickly. So firstly, it can be used in contrast to the economic rich. Secondly, it can be when it's used in callocation with the widows, that is close proximity to widows, it includes economic poverty, but not primarily economic poverty. What it actually means is a person who's dependent on others. So when it relates to widows, it is not the fact that she's economically poor, but the fact that she's dependent on others. For instance, in Mark 12, the poor widow. She does not make it by herself. She is dependent on someone else. Only used four times in the New Testament. Thirdly, there is the poor who are circumstantially poor. They are not economically poor permanently. They are poor because of a specific period in their life. For instance, Romans chapter uh, 15 verse 26, the poor saints in Jerusalem, what took place in Jerusalem? There was a famine, which was a circumstance that caused them to be in a state of poverty temporarily. There was, they still worked, they still possessed land, but they could not survive because of the, 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 the famine. So landowners, even though they had money, were still considered poor. This is circumstantial poverty. D, the same word can be used of those who are humble. For instance, Luke chapter 6 verse 20. Blessed are the poor, for theirs, in, uh, uh, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That is exactly the same word. In all these cases, it is the same word used for poor. But it's not all the same meaning. Why? Because context determines what? Meaning. Context determines what? Are you awake? Meaning. Matthew 5 determines that poor in that context, the Beatitudes, is the poor in heart, the humble who are humble before God, not economic poverty. So what this word means then is all of that. Every context will tell you exactly what it means and how you should interpret. It does not necessarily mean the immediacy of material and economic poverty, but that is how people interpret. When they see poor, they think, oh, shame. That's the guy on the corner. Oh, shame. It's, it's a guy living in the shack. It's got to be the same people. No. That's, that's not the equation. Uh, not the equation. The equitative sense in which we should apply it. Too often there is a promptness to assume that poor always means economic poverty when it does not. Getting back to Matthew 11, what does the poor mean in this context? There are at least six things that are, that are mentioned that Jesus tells his disciples, John's disciples, to go back and mention to him. It's this. Number one, the blind. 
receive sight. Number two, the lame walk. Number three, the lepers are cleansed. Number four, the deaf hear. Number five, the dead are raised. And number six, the poor have the gospel. So what does Jesus mean? Why does he quote all these three passages together? And I want you to pay attention here because this is the theological significance of Jesus' statement. I'm going to get to the poor. I'm building you up to that point. But hang on. I want you to see the significance first of what Jesus is saying before I will deal with why the poor is in this context. Number one, Jesus uses Isaiah 35, verse 5 through to 6, because the king is present. The context of Isaiah 35, verse 5 through to 6, is the kingdom reign of the Messiah. The kingdom reign of the Messiah. And Jesus snatches a quote out of that section to say, Tell John that the king is here. How would he know that the king is here? You can turn or just listen uh, to Isaiah 35. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. And then shall the lame leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute shall sing for joy. Shall sing for joy. It's not sushi. It's sushi. Yeah, I, I struggle with sushi. The first four speaks of the kingdom reign of Christ. You can go to Isaiah 35. We don't have sufficient time to go through the entire section. But if you read that section, it establishes that there's a promise of a Messiah who will reign, who will rule over his people. A sign of his coming will be this. It will affect the lives of his people. He will come and heal them. He has the power to change their physical state. But this is not the millennium that Jesus is in, right? That is the bigger question. Why is Jesus quoting from a millennium section where the king will reign over his people? That is the question, and we'll maybe discuss that a little bit more on Thursday. Sorry, on Wednesday. So Jesus acknowledges that he is the one to fulfill the messianic hope of the messianic reign. How do you know that? Because the king is healing his people. The king is doing a work amongst his people. So secondly, there's the dead that shall live. And this comes from Isaiah 26, verse 19. Notice what it says. Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. And some take this to be the resurrection. But take note of this. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth shall give birth to the dead. What do we have here? To the dead, right? Sorry. Here there is a prophetic word about the dead who shall be brought to life. In what context? In the context of God coming both in judgment and deliverance from the dead. What takes place during the millennial kingdom? There is a what? Resurrection of the dead. Oh, interesting. Listen to Isaiah 26, verse 21. For behold, Yahweh is coming out from his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity and the earth will disclose the blood shed on, shed on it and will no more cover its slain. They're going to come back to life. 
What is God doing? What is He saying? God is promising that judgment will come on those who have killed God's people. So how do you know that the Messiah, the Anointed One, is present? When the King is present, the dead shall rise from the graves. So two witnesses. There will be healing and there will be people who are raised from the dead. Again, I don't have the time to go through all of it because I do want to get to the end of the sermon. When He comes, the saints will be raised from the dead. Jesus is saying, yes, I am He. Because the Old Testament prophesies that there will be one who will heal. And then there will be one who has power over death. Not two different people, the same person. Thirdly, we have Isaiah 61 verse 1. The preaching of the poor means the anointed one. The preaching to the poor means the anointed one has come. And I want you to turn there because this is the substance of our case. Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord, Adonai Elohim, the Spirit of the Lord, God, is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Now take note of us too. To proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all who mourn. Jesus quotes these various passages to say to John. The prophetic words by Isaiah is being fulfilled in your midst. Israel, if you look at the rest of the section, and I'm not going to go through that, there's a constant reminder of mourning, mourning in Zion in verse 3, mourning in the middle of verse 3, uh, ruins in, in, in verse 4, devastations in verse 4, the, the shame in verse 7, and then it speaks about the Lord's justice against those who have done wrong. Why the context of God's judgment and the, the misery that goes in, in uh, that, that exists there? Because Israel will be under persecution and hardship and affliction, and then the king comes. And when he comes, he will preach to the poor. Now, if you look into your marginal notes, what do you see next to the word poor? There should probably be a one or an asterisk or a letter there. If you look at the bottom in some of your notes or in the margin, it will say afflicted. Because in the context here, the poor are those who are afflicted. The poor are those who mourn. The poor are those who have suffered devastation. The poor are those who have gone through suffering. They are the afflicted. And when Christ comes, He will preach to those who have gone through affliction. He's the one who will bind up their wounds. Jesus says, tell John that both vengeance and salvation is near. It is near. But what I want you to see is that poor is not isolated. It's not the most important group in this context. Jesus is not particularly thinking of those who are economically poor, but those who are afflicted and are considered poor because of their affliction. 
I want you to take note of those groups again. I'm going to mention it. The blind, the lame, the lepers, the deaf, and the dead. Poor sounds to be out of context, right? If you put economic poverty included in that, there's something wrong. Because that does not fit the description here. All refer to some sort of bodily ailment or something that refers to the body. All of them. So what about the poor? Well, poor doesn't mean economic poverty here. It refers to those who have affliction in their body. If you go through that list again and now think affliction, blind, lame, lepers, deaf, dead, and afflicted, it makes sense now, doesn't it? Well, there's a much better, clearer textual explanation here to say that this is not economic poverty. Firstly, the clue is in verse 1 of 61. That word poor is afflicted. But Jesus doesn't say afflicted, right? He uses the word poor. So why does Jesus use the word poor? Well, Jesus is not quoting the Old Testament Hebrew. He's quoting the Old Testament what? What do you think? Greek. The Septuagint. He's quoting the language that they are familiar with. And guess what the word is in the Septuagint? Poor. Because poor can mean afflicted. Physical affliction. Do you see how wide this word is? Jesus accurately quotes the Old Testament and you might say, well that's not the same word. It's afflicted in Hebrew but it's poor in Greek. How is that the same word? In the Greek, the word poor, if you look it up, has the capacity to mean physical affliction. There are those who take Isaiah 61, 1 and Matthew 11 to mean humble. And you can get away with it. It makes absolute sense if it is humble. But all five prior to poor are physical ailments. Things that, are, uh, that involves the body. Even death involves your body. So in the context here, Jesus speaks about something that relates to the body. Again, I'm going to mention it to you. And here's what I want you to think of. What does this speak about? Blindness. Lame. Actually made up words. I had blindology, lameology, lepidology, deafology, deadology, and poorology. Yeah, and so I, I, I remember that, but it's not my notes. So I, now you know. So if you think of blindness, lame, lepers, deaf, dead, and afflicted, why do they exist? Why do they exist? Because of the? Because of sin. Yes, amen. Because of the? Fall. Because of the first Adam. Jesus is telling John, I have power over the effects of the fall. I want you to get that. Jesus quotes all those verses that relates to his kingdom dominion reign because the king is the only one who has power over death and over the ailments of this life. 
whether it's a broken toe or broken arm, a runny nose, whatever the ailment is, Christ has power over it. So he says to John, listen, son, listen very carefully. I am the one who has the power over the effects of the fall because I am the true Adam. I am the one who who has the capacity to eradicate death. I am the one who has the capacity to, to, to cause people who are lame to walk again. I am the only one that can do that because I am the anointed one. A new Adam, a second Adam, and a true king has come. That is the message that Jesus is giving to John. This is not about the poor or the economic poor as we think about today. I mean, that just brings such goosebumps, spiritual goosebumps, when I think of the the, the weightiness of the theology that Jesus does in three lines. This means that there's tremendous theological import and inference here that Jesus is making, and we destroy it when we say that this is economic poverty. We lose the emphasis affliction, sickness, blindness death I have power over all of it because I am the anointed one Jesus is not making a practical point about caring for the poor but a theological point that the ultimate one who is the fulfillment of the prophetic voice of the Old Testament has come and yes there is some challenges because Jesus quotes from the millennium discussion. And I don't really have an answer why he does it, because you could have quoted from other passages. When we focus on the poor as economic poor, we miss the beauty and the supremacy of Jesus Christ in this passage. Jesus opens up the significance of his presence on earth to say, Yeah. I am the second Adam, the last Adam. I am the one who has power over life. Here's the danger of social justice, mercy ministries, and anything that focuses purely on the poor. It detracts from the glory of Christ. Why do I say that? Because Christ in his millennium reign will have power to eradicate poverty. He will. In fact, he had the power when he came in his first appearance to eradicate poverty. Did he do it? He did not do it. Why? Because that is not why Christ comes. He comes to eradicate your soul's poor state. That is why Christ came. We need to see here, as in every context where Paul is mentioned, that there is a meaning within its use. Let's not take just a general meaning of poverty and apply it to the passage, because that destroys the passage. Practically speaking, listen to what Jesus is saying to John. He does not say that I came to change their socio-economic status. He does not say every student loan is paid off. He does not say I came to eradicate poverty. He does not say Come to me and I will take care of you alone. Does not say that. How lovely it would be if, if Jesus was a social liberator. But he's not. He does say 
that the afflicted, they have the gospel. They have the gospel. Friend, Jesus is not here to heal your economic problems. That's not why he came to earth. But he is here to heal your soul's problem. Misnomer number four. Lack of ministry to the poor relates to our reward and loss of salvation. Matthew 25. Very interesting section. I'm going to read it and then I'll make some comments on it because I don't want to go over time. Matthew 25, verse 31. Uh, let me just read the, the section that is relevant to the sermon. Um, verse 35. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you a drink? And when did, you, uh, and, and when did we see you a stranger, and welcome you, or naked, and clothe you? And when did we see you sick, or in prison, and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these my brothers, you did it to me. Pretty simple passage, right? Listen to Desmond Tutu. I know, I know. Don't throw your toys out. In the Reformed Journal of South Africa, it should tell you something when it says reform. We should probably be able to agree with it, right? Listen to what it says. Quote, in the story relating to Matthew 25, Jesus declared it would be better whether we feed or did not feed the hungry, whether we clothe or did not clothe the naked, whether we visited the imprisoned or did not, which would say what our final destination was going to be. You catch that? Quote. So, if you don't do these things, feed the hungry, clothe the naked, visit the imprisoned, those who are imprisoned, your soul salvation is in danger. This, we would say, is a wooden interpretation of the passage. But this is common. I went from the extreme to uh, the fact that most evangelicals would say exactly the same thing. In fact, they say, quote, it is our duty to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, and to visit those who are in prison, end quote. Hang on. Is just anybody in prison? So I can just walk up to prison and say, I'm going to visit the first person on the list. Just let me visit him. If we don't, our salvation is actually in question. That's what they said. Listen to this. Liberal theologian Kelly Douglas says, I think it's a she. I'm going to say she. I think it's a she. Says the exact same thing as our friend uh, Desmond Tutu. 
But I want you to see that the lines of separation between evangelical thinking and liberal thinking are slowly fading away on this issue. What Anglican churches say and what liberal churches say and what evangelicals say are not exactly the same. The first most of us will disagree with, but the latter, take note of this. A lot of the evangelical church would say, yeah, sure, I could, I could jump on that band wagon. This may shock some of you, so hold on to your speed belt, seat belts. Quote, Inasmuch as the cross reflects the crucifying realities of a white supremacy culture, the blackness of Christ is more about, more than about a white-black color line. It is about the color of white supremacy. In regard to Christ's blackness, in this regard, Christ's blackness indicates his deep and personal identification with people of color as they suffer heartache and death exacted on them by the insidiousness of white supremacy culture. I'm going to pause it for a moment. So the problem is not the fact that they are poor. The problem is that they are poor because of white people. So it's not Adam's fault. All of you white folk? Mm-hmm. Just saying. And so he or she goes on. And so, quote, we might paraphrase the gospel question today in this way. Take note of this. Lord, where did we see you dying on a cross? And Jesus would answer, on a Florida sidewalk with Trayvon Martin. At the U.S.-Mexican border with an immigrant who was refused asylum. Or in a detention center with a brown child separated from his or her parents. Or at a juvenile court with a black child trapped in the poverty of the prison pipeline. As you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. End quote. From the book, The Black Christ. <laughs> yeah. Well, evangelicals may disagree with a lot of the first part of it because of the influx of workology, transformation theology, social justice, the last part they actually agree with. This is where you can see the gospel demonstrated. This is where you can see Jesus Christ crucified in the ghetto, with the poor, in the shacks, on the street corner. Why do evangelicals agree with us? Because there is no longer any lines of separation on social matters. We are all saying the same thing. We are all walking in the same direction. But what you have here in Matthew 25 is a complete misrepresentation and an uncontextual use of the passage. Most guys today take the broad sense that this means we ought to care for those who are suffering in prison and naked. According to these theological convictions, we, the church, if we do not pull up our socks, our reward in heaven is in danger and our soul salvation is in question. Look at verse 20, 41 of 25. And he will say to those on the left, 
depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal flames or eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the judgment on those who do not care for Christ. So, is this a Christian who has not cared for others and as a result of that ends up losing his soul? Firstly, I think the context is pretty clear in verse 40. There's a limitation placed on who's in view. The king will say to them, truly I say to you, as you did it to the least of these, don't forget this, my brothers. Who are they? Clearly disciples, right? It cannot be the world. Just based on that verse, this is not the poor, the naked, the suffering in the world. Not at all, not in the least. It deals with, let me put it this way, Jesus is talking to saints about saints who are suffering. You care for them. If you don't care for them, then you're probably not part of the sheep. Then you are part of the goats who are acting like sheep but are not sheep. The goats who have deceived men by putting on sheep clothing. So surely you are not part of the saints. Secondly, the wider context. What does this form part of? Matthew 24, 25 is known as the those of you students, as the Olivet Discourse, thank you. My goodness, you are so sharp. The Olivet Discourse, don't forget this. There's a wider context in view. Who are the prime audience of the Olivet Discourse? The Jews. Matthew 25 speaks about the Great Tribulation period, where Jews will go through the great tribulation period, they will suffer. Look at uh, verse 24, uh, chapter 24, verse 25. I'm going to back up because I think it's, um, it's helpful to, to, to put it in context. Verse 20. Pray that your fight may not be in winter, your flight may not be in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation. That's the context. Such as had not been been from the beginning of the world until now. And now, now and no, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days future will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and will perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, which is not possible. See, I've told you beforehand. So, if they say, look, here, uh, I'm going to pause over there. Jump down to 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the, star, and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the signs of the Son of Man. Just so there. So Jesus is talking about the great tribulation period. The saints, the church, 
do not go through the great tribulation period unless your theology says that it does, but they don't. So you're not to take my word for it. This focuses on the Jews. So the period that is in view here, both Matthew 24 and 25, is the period that focuses on the Jews. Which means then, when Jesus says, these my brethren, who is he talking about? The Jews. Why would they be suffering? Why would they be imprisoned? Because of the great tribulation period. Their faith in Christ puts them on the outside of society. Remember, this great man of sin, the man of lawlessness, the Antichrist will come. What will he do? He will persecute those who follow Christ. They will be imprisoned. They will become poor. They will not be able to eat because they refuse to take the sign of the mark of the beast. Wow. That changes a couple of things, right? So when Jesus says, as, as you have done to the least of this, he's talking about the Jews who will go through the great tribulation period, and he says to them, when you are in that context as a sufferer, a, a co-sufferer to those saints who are in jail, go visit them. When you are suffering with them and they do not have bread, share your last loaf with them. As you are going through persecution and being killed for my name, what do you do? You care for them. What is Jesus saying? You do not retract from those who are mine. You do not stop loving those who are suffering for my sake. That is the context. I think it's pretty clear. The context of 25 refers back to Matthew 24, especially verse 9. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my sake. That is the Jews. That is not Christians. We are not here at that stage. I know. Let me end on this. This entire section fundamentally focuses on God's relationship with the Jews, which means it doesn't apply to the church. You won't go through tribulation, but it doesn't mean you don't have to care for God's people. In fact, there's sufficient evidence to say that we should. So since contextually the Lord is not talking about the church, it means that the church won't lose their salvation or the reward. Because we're not there. We're not the people in view in Matthew 25. But those who are partaking of activist theology, social justice, Christian activism, wokeology, and mercy ministries, read this text and apply it directly to the church today. Because the fundamental problem is this, that you go from text to application. Not text to understanding, to application. There's something missing in our hermeneutics, and it is that understanding part. We cannot take these verses out of context or in isolation because they form part of Jesus' discussion in both Matthew 24 and 25. Okay, so what can we learn from the section then? Matthew 24, 25. If the church is going to go, if the church doesn't go through persecution, does this mean that we can just jump over it while, you know, in our reading? Just don't read it because it doesn't relate? Well, no. This is what you can take away from it. Despite hardship, affliction, and persecution, the church should still care for one another. Because that is what Jesus is making, the point that Jesus is making to those Jews who are suffering. 
Just because you're suffering doesn't mean it exempts you from, from caring for those who are suffering. In other words, hardship does not excuse us from caring and loving those who are suffering or afflicted. So, finally, the question is this. How should churches respond to those who are poor? I'll give you two practical reasons. Number one, number one the poor are given responsibility in both Old and New Testaments. In the Old Testament, if you were poor, you still had to make a sacrifice. Think about that. Old Testament saints who did not have as much as others still had to bring a lamb. And if uh, you uh, brought your child uh, after a birth for, for purification, if you couldn't afford the, the, the sacrifice, you had to bring some doves. You still have to make a sacrifice. You were not exempt from it. In the New Testament, the poor still have to give. There is nobody in the church of Jesus Christ or in the nation of Israel, if you were poor, that was exempt from helping others or make a sacrifice. Economic poverty was never an excuse for not giving to the Lord. The church in the New Testament helped the saints in Jerusalem when they suffered because of famine. And the churches that Paul was uh, getting money from were poor churches, Gentile churches who did not have a lot, but they gave out of their poverty, not out of their abundance. How can we engage in this? Well, what about uh, the ministry that Don is involved in? Safe houses. You could give towards that. What about our Helping Hands ministry? Sadly to say, that box stays empty for most of the weeks in the month. There's maybe one or two items, and Iron can, can speak to you about it. One or two items that comes in. And it's, it's not the fact that we don't give, it's the fact that we don't think about giving. Number two, everyone, that is every believer, must love saints through practical helps. Why? Because a lack of love for God's people has eternal implications. Whether it was for the Jews or whether it is for the, 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 the church today. In 1 John chapter 3, 16 and 17. Um, let me just read that to you. 1 John three sixteen. By this we know love. That he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, does, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, if that's the case, you probably don't have God's love because God's love motivates you to love. So if you have the capacity to help others, then you should help others. I'm speaking in terms of the church. Those, those who don't have debt, you could help Financial planning, if you are good in it, um, help those saints who have struggles with financial planning. Um, share with them abilities to get rid of their debt. Don't keep your hands close to your chest. And that may involve you helping them through small um, um, ways. Like, for instance, you could say, well, let me take this month's um, uh, 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 food cost. And you take that money you would have spent on the food and put it on your ex-debt. But then we will start planning about what you can do with that money as you move forward. 
There are various ways in which church can start helping those saints. What about those who are losing their jobs because of um, these ridiculous mandates? How should the church get involved with those saints? Not only support them, but help them. And you may not be able to give financially to them, but when you're doing your monthly shopping, keep them in mind. Then buy an extra box of porridge or whatever you have and put it in the box. But we don't think in terms of helping saints. And that's why there are so many poor people in the church. James in chapter 2.15 says that faith without the direct demonstration for God's people is dead faith. A sign of Christian devotion is not love for the poor in the world, but it is love for God's people. What did Jesus say? They will know that you are my disciples if you love what? The world? No. If you love one another. That is a true sign of a Christian. Not love for the poor in this world. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for sending your son to be the sacrifice for our sins. Paul says in the second book of Corinthians that he became poor. He was rich, became poor for us. That we may become, that we may become the righteousness of God through him. We became rich spiritually because of his sacrifice. Father, help us to never forget the tremendous sacrifice that your son has made for us. Help us to love your people as you have loved us. To care for one another as they suffer for your name's sake. We give thanks for your patience. Help us, Lord, with clear thinking on this issue of poverty and the church. That we may glorify you in how we love those who are suffering, not only in the church, but also in the world. So we give thanks to you in Christ's name. Amen.